Good morning, Southside. Hope you're doing well. We're in week five or six or seven. I don't even know. I can't keep track anymore of social isolation. And at the time of this recording, Abilene has extended our stay-at-home order through the end of April. And uh, we're doing church as best we can. We are being the church. And I'm encouraged overall about what I'm hearing. God is continuing to work in you and through you and strengthening you in various ways. And I'm excited to see how God's going to work and through it, how he's going to work. I really think we're going to be stronger when this is over. But there are some things I've been discouraged about as well, not only in Southside, but just more broadly what we're hearing, that is marriages, marriages that are struggling. It turns out that more time together makes marriage harder, especially if you're not centered on Jesus. Well, why is that? Why does marriage become harder when we are together more? A couple of years ago, there was a marriage expert, Christian marriage expert that came to Abilene uh, to do a, a talk and it was a fight night so it was about conflict and marriage and it started out with why we fight and he listed three reasons and to be honest I don't even remember what they were but I do remember what was missing sin there was no mention of sin on the reason why we fight well marriage is harder when we're confined together because we're sinners in confined spaces for extended periods of time And here's the bad news. You may be saved, but you will still sin and you will sin against the one you love. Indwelling sin will be with us until the resurrection of the dead. And sin, more than anything, turns us in on the self. It makes us self-centered. And when self-centered sinners, self-centered sinners are together in close quarters for an extended period of time, it can be like sandpaper. And so I want to take some time as we take a break from Easter and Romans just to talk about having a God-centered marriage this morning. If you're not married, listen up anyway. You may end up married one day, but I also think a lot of what I'm going to say is going to apply to other relationships as well. Before we talk about a God-centered marriage, though, we need to ask in our culture, what is marriage? The world is confused about marriage, rarely even talks about marriage, and when it does, it's disparagingly. Well, biblically, marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman whom God joins together in order to fulfill his purposes. God devised marriage. It's the first human institution. Sometime go read Genesis 1 and 2 with this in mind and you'll find a beautiful picture of this most significant relationship. God creates humans, and the first human job description is get married and have children. The first recorded human words are a love song. This, at last, I mean, just think about Etta James, is bone of my bones. And God designed marriage, I think we can say, for at least five purposes. First and foremost, to reflect the gospel. We'll say more about that in a moment. Second, to refine our character say more about that as well. Third, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children. Fourth, to create a a school of sanctification. Fifth, to create a whole life union between a man and a woman. Martin Luther puts it together well. He says this, he says, the ultimate purpose of marriage is to obey God to find aid and counsel against sin, to call upon God, to seek, love, and educate children for the glory of God, to live with one's wife in the fear of God, and to bear the cross. So that's what marriage is. Now let's consider three pillars 
of a God-centered marriage. And they're going to be, number one, self-forgetfulness. Number two, self-denial. And number three, self-giving love. So first, self-forgetfulness. In other words, we've got to realize that marriage is not about you. Marriage, like all of life, is about God. My favorite marriage verse doesn't even explicitly mention marriage. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When you're seeking God first, everything else will take care of itself. God will look out for you. And when you have two self-forgetful people in a marriage, two people both seeking God first, you have a healthy marriage. Marriages go south when you have people seeking their own agenda, their own glory. But when you have both people forsaking their own agenda and adopting God's, things get healthy. When you have two people that are seeking their own agenda rather than God's, things get really tough. So seek the Lord. Seek him together. Pursue him. Pursue him together. Obey him. Pray to him. Hear from him through reading his word. View all of life as worship. Marriage included. You are married for God's glory first and foremost. Your first thought shouldn't be, how can I make my spouse happy? Certainly shouldn't be, well, how can I be happy? What can I get out of this? Your first thought should be to honor God. You want to honor God in this marriage. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, even eating or drinking, let all that you be done for the glory of God. A flourishing and happy marriage is not rooted in self-centeredness. It's not rooted in romance. It's rooted in worship. And so I want to ask of your marriage, is God the center? Or is he just on the periphery? Is his church, the local church, is it a priority in your marriage? Of course, this looks differently now, but it can still be a priority. What about the word of God? Is the word of God central in your home? Is it read daily? Do you pray daily? Do you pray together? Husbands, if you don't pray with your wife daily, today is the day to begin praying with your wife. You can do it tonight. Say, I don't even know how. Listen, just thank God for the day. Give him the glory Ask for a good night's rest and ask for help tomorrow. Start that simple. Just begin. Is God the center? What about in the way you fight? A solid marriage is not a marriage free from conflict. That'd be unrealistic, this side of the resurrection. But a marriage that does conflict resolution well, that's a solid marriage. When conflict comes knocking at the door, blowing the door down, do you handle it in a godly way? Just several weeks ago in our purpose series, we talked about the four G's. I want us as a church to embody and own these four G's of conflict resolution. Let me remind you, they are number one, glorify God in your conflict. Number two, get the log out of your own eye. Number three, gently restore. And number four, go and be reconciled. Conflict is coming. Apparently it's coming more since we're together more. And so let's apply these four G's when the conflict happens. Number one, glorify God. In a fight, you want to honor God first and foremost. You want to worship through it. And so that's going to affect the kind of words you use. That's going to affect your tone. Obviously, there would be no abuse. I've been very discouraged about a rise in domestic abuse. It is terrible. What an what a indication of a fallen world, especially as a man, the head of the home is home more and the house should flourish and rather there's an increase of abuse. If there's abuse, call the authorities immediately. We glorify God. Number two, we get the log out. 
get the log out of our own eye before we find the speck in the eye of our spouse. Remember that we are first sinners, second sinned against. And so we own our parts. We confess our sin and we confess it with specificity. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm sorry about that. No, confess it before God with specificity. Confess it to your spouse with specificity. I am sorry, I sinned against God with the way I spoke to you and I disrespected you. Will you forgive me? Specific confession. And as Christians, we can own our sin because Christ has paid for it. The gospel is true. And so confession, forgiveness, reconciliation ought to be happening all the time. It's just the gospel culture of a Christian home. And men, lead out in this. Even when you're not the initiator, you are the chief repenter. No blame shifting like Adam. No excuse making. Paul Tripp writes this in his book on marriage. It's a long quote, but it's solid. He says, enough of pointing the finger. Enough of listening to your inner lawyer defend your cause. Enough of carrying around a record of your spouse's wrongs. Enough of judging, criticizing, and blaming. Enough of holding the other to a higher standard than the one you hold for yourself. Enough of complaining, arguing, withdrawing, and manipulating. Enough of the self-righteous standoff that never leads to change. Enough of hurt and acrimony. Enough of painting yourself as the victim and your spouse as the criminal. Enough of demanding and entitlement. Enough of threat and guilt. Enough of telling the other how good you are and how thankful she should be to live with a person like you. Enough of going to bed in angry self-righteous silence. Enough of hyper-vigilantly watching him to see if he's delivering. Enough of looking to him to be your personal Messiah, satisfying the longings of your heart. Enough. It's time to quit pointing the finger and to start confessing how deep and pervasive your weakness is. Change in your marriage begins with confessing your need. Get the log out of your eye first, third, and then gently restore. Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So you gently restore, and then forth you go and be reconciled. Staying at home together may cause an increase in conflict, and honestly, that's okay, so long as we handle it in a godly manner. So self-forgetfulness. Because marriage is not about you. The fundamental purpose of marriage shows us it's not about us. It's to reflect the gospel. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Let's read verse 22 to 32. the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And here's the key. Paul quotes Genesis 2 here in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A whole lot could be said about this Magna Carta of marriage, but notice the purpose of marriage there in verse 31 and 32. Paul quotes Genesis 2 and says, This mystery is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. The word mystery here, it doesn't, it's not something that's hard to understand, but it's a truth that was previously hidden, that's now been revealed. The people of Moses' day, they didn't get all that stood behind Genesis chapter 2. But here we learn that God created the world. Before he created the world, he had a plan to send Jesus to win his bride. And we learn that the relationship between Christ and his bride, Christ in the church, is the basis for the institution of marriage. Could there be any higher view? Marriage is meant to reflect the gospel. That is why it was designed according to these verses. Two implications. First, that's why the enemy hates healthy marriages because the enemy sees healthy marriages and it reminds him of his downfall. It reminds him of Christ and the church. Second, this means that your marriage is preaching a gospel. Maybe a heretical gospel. Hopefully it's a true one, but it's preaching. And so let's ask, does your marriage reflect the gospel does your marriage reflect Christ in the church it's why marriage exists if you are married this is why to be a picture of Christ in the church if you want to be married this should be your goal to put the covenant love between Christ and his church on display See, marriage exists fundamentally to be a picture of Christ in the church a platform for the gospel and so if you haven't before, begin now to view your marriage as a way to demonstrate and advertise the relationship between Christ and the church. God designed it to be a picture. So how clear is the portrait of the gospel that our marriages are displaying? And if marriage is meant to be a picture of the covenant love of Jesus and his church, it's meant to be permanent. Christ keeps his covenant love to his people till death do his part. King Jesus said, they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In marriage, we become one flesh. The two become one, showing marriage's uniqueness, showing its priority, showing how a husband and wife are unified, showing that this is to be an exclusive relationship. So the first pillar of a God-centered marriage is self-forgetfulness. The second one is self-denial. And we don't like self-denial. We like self-approval. We like self-affirmation. We like self-aggrandizements. Self, self, self. Me, myself, and I. Mine, mine, mine. But Jesus calls all of his followers to deny ourself. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. 
calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And remember, friends, bearing the cross in the first century was not dealing with a bad back or a stubborn boss or your mother-in-law. No, in the first century, bearing the cross meant death, execution, crucifixion. And the followers of Jesus are called to deny self and take up our cross. Luke 9, same teaching, says daily. But here's the beauty of it. Self-denial is actually the path to life. That's what he says, right? You focus on you, you lose your life. But you focus on me and the gospel, you save your life. The good life. So all Christians are called to self-denial. Self-denial is not some optional add-on, but it is a basic call of Jesus. And it is crucial for a healthy, flourishing marriage. A healthy marriage is a healthy marriage because by the grace of God, the people in that marriage are in it for God and in it for the good of one another. They daily deny self. They constantly work on it. Such a valuable virtue for a flourishing marriage. The ability to lay down your selfish agenda, to catch ungodly thoughts, to edit harsh words, to deny self. And I say self-denial because really the, the biggest battles in marriage are not actually with your spouse. You say, of course they are. No, the real battle is with yourself. The battle begins in your own heart. We got to get this. Your biggest marriage problem does not lie outside of you. Listen to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death notice that sin always begins in the heart your own desire and obviously we're talking about ungodly desires inordinate desires desiring the wrong thing begins here in fact flip over a couple pages if you're there look at James chapter 4 verse 1 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you it's a good question if you've been struggling in your marriage as you spent more time together why what causes it well God has a word for us is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and do not have so you murder you covet which is to want something too much and cannot obtain and so you fight and quarrel this is so helpful. And this is so crucial for dealing with conflict in marriage. The first step to resolution is self-denial. Ask yourself, what is going on in your heart? The conflict is coming. The temperature's rising. Ask yourself, what is going on in your heart? Alicia, we'll often say that. We'll get tense. What's going on in your heart? What do you want? Your desires. Again, your spouse is not your biggest problem you are. Jesus said all over the place, evil doesn't come from outside. He said that evil thoughts and fights and adultery and theft and slander, they come from your heart. 
your desires. Think about your last fight. It wasn't due to his temper or her emotions, his lack of affection, her nagging. It was due to the passions at war within you. And then you responded. So you can control how you deal with your misplaced desires. Your spouse is not your main problem. And listen, the Rona, COVID-19, it's not the problem. It's just turning up the heat so the true flavor is coming out. Quarantine may be bringing stuff out, but that stuff was already there. My greatest marital problem is me. Say that with me. My greatest marital problem is me. You do what you do because you want what you want. And when you don't get what you want, what do you do? When the conflict arises, what is it that you want? What are you desiring at that moment? Usually, something or someone else has become Lord of your life. Something you must have, but you're not getting. And so get used to doing heart exams, getting at that desire level. What is going on in the heart? As I mentioned, one of the purposes of marriage is is our sanctification, is our transformation. God puts two sinners together with the goal of conforming us to Jesus. It ain't unlike marriage to expose our own pride and expose our own sinfulness. And it's so helpful to view marriage that way. Do you view marriage that way as a means of your personal growth, a means of your sanctification? Luther described it as the the school for character. And so lean into that. Do it well. Be engaged, remembering God's purposes, even in the difficulties. God's at work, right? Romans 8, 28 and 29. Huge verses, God's working all things, even challenges from your spouse to conform you to the image of his son. That's the good. Gary Thomas has a book called Sacred Marriage. And I love the subtitle. What if God designed marriage to make you holy more than happy? Now, as Mark 8, 34, Jesus just said, though, when you, when you, fi- you really do find life when, you're lo- when you lose your life. So for Jesus, holiness is happiness. It's kind of a false dichotomy. But the road to holiness is often bumpy. It requires work. Is marriage during a quarantine challenging? Yes. But don't forget or neglect God's purposes in it. And it's to transform you, make you a more loving person, make you a more patient person. Marriage is a means of growth. Again, Paul Tripp, marriage is meant to be a tool in God's hands to expose your heart and drive you to the end of yourself. Marriage is meant to expose your self-focus and self-reliance. It's meant to convince you that you are needier than you thought you were and to encourage you that God's grace has more power to transform than you thought it did. Marriage is meant to teach you how to give, love, serve, forgive, support, encourage, and wait. It's a tool in God's hands. Are you viewing it that way? God sovereignly and strategically chose your spouse for you, even before he created the world, to be a part of his plan in conforming you to Jesus. So a God-centered marriage is characterized by self-forgetfulness, and self-denial third by self-giving love you know most people would say love is central to marriage but most people have been more discipled by the world than they have the scripture most are getting their definition of love more from rom-coms than the apostles and the prophets the devil's dictionary defines love as a temporary insanity 
curable by marriage. That's the world's definition of love. They define love as just some random force. And it just comes in, right? It's this invisible, you know, the invisible Cupid shoots the arrow of love. It's overwhelming. It's uncontrollable. But listen, friend, that's more lust than love. It's not a biblical definition of love. And love wears a lot of hats. What is love? Well, you know, I love my wife and I love chips and salsa. Man, y'all remember those? The good old days? (laughs) But love for salsa and love for your spouse should be differently. And so we've got to define love rightly. And biblically, the cross defines love. The best best passage that defines it for us is 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Tell me, please. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus laid down. He gave himself. The cross shows us what it is to love. Ephesians 5.2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So when we talk about self-giving love, we're talking about cross-shaped love, cruciform love. Love is about giving, not getting, sacrificing, not receiving. It's a verb. And that's important. So many marriages go astray because they conceive of love as just a feeling, merely a feeling. And so when those butterflies exit the stomach, think, well, I must have fallen out of love. Cupid must have removed his arrow. Listen, that's false, even destructive view of love. Not to mention unrealistic. Love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Another long quote, but this is worth listening to. Speaking about what the world considers love as just feeling. He says, now no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mint, they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true and would be highly undesirable. If it were, who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships? But of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habits reinforced by at least in christian marriages the grace which both partners ask and receive from god they can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself they can retain this love even when each could easily if they allowed themselves to be in love with someone else being in love first moved them to promise fidelity This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It's on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. And this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. They weren't meant to. 
That's pseudo love. And it gets old fast. The new wears off. The initial buzz of physical attraction has a short shelf life. You wake up that very first morning. You got morning breath. You got bird nest hair. Then your metabolism begins to slow over time. Gravity kicks in. Now during this season, you haven't put on makeup in two weeks. He hasn't put on pants in 10 days. Listen, friends, marriages built on lust lose their luster really quickly. Weight, warts, and wrinkles are inevitable. So love's not just feelings. No, love biblically defined is when a spouse sacrifices and serves with a view to enabling their spouse to become all that God intends for them to be. Love is giving of self. It is self-sacrificial commitment for the good of another. It is intentionally seeking their good, regardless of if they deserve it or not, regardless of what it costs us. And in God's kindness, feelings remain. Feelings are a byproduct of covenant love. They are a happy overflow of self-giving love. And of course, this kind of definition is what historically has informed our vows, right? We vow for better or worse in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad, long as we both shall live till death do us part. Our vows weren't so much a declaration of present love. We all knew that. Everybody knows that. Our vows are a mutually binding promise of future love because marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. And we learn to love from the gospel and we dwell in the gospel when we fail to love. Because friends, we will fail one another. We must dwell in the gospel and our failure. You have blown it. You will blow it. God's not surprised. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. There's forgiveness at the cross. God has treated us better than we deserve. And that truth becomes the basis and the motivation for treating our spouses better than they deserve. We forgive when they sin against us because we've been forgiven. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness informs the way we treat others. Merciful. So this gospel of grace, it's the foundation of a God-centered marriage. You see, it's not the presence of significant differences, but the absence of mercy and forgiveness that makes them irreconcilable. We've got to keep the gospel front and center. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. He said, in a word, live together in the forgiveness of your sins. For without it, no human fellowship, least of all a marriage, can survive. So married friends, maybe, maybe sometime after you watch this, you need to have a sit down. Sit down and talk and, and recalibrate things. You need to confess sin and you need to freely grant forgiveness and you need to resolve to pursue self-forgetfulness, to pursue self-denial, to pursue self-giving love. We want Southside Baptist Church to be a place filled with healthy marriages, a place where more time together means health. It means happiness. It means being centered on Christ. It means deeper respect. It means more tender affection. It means greater appreciation. It means more unity, more understanding, sweeter 
intimacy, closer friendship, all grounded in the worship of Christ our King. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and how it shows us what marriage is and it shows us the path to the good life. Thank you for Ephesians 5. What a beautiful picture that we wouldn't know if you hadn't shown us. Lord, I pray that we would have a high view of marriage in the midst of a culture that has a very low view of marriage, Lord. And would it be our goal to be faithful pictures, faithful advertisements of how Christ and the church relate and love one another. Pray for those marriages that have been struggling. Lord, would you grant the grace needed to have hard conversations, grant the humility needed to confess shortcomings, confess sin, grant the grace needed to to have forgiveness. And we're so thankful for your promises. It's never too late. We can resolve afresh. We can begin anew. There is mercy new every day. Mercy that is greater than our sin. So Lord, would you help us? Would Southside Baptist Church be a place characterized by marriages centered on you for our good and for your glory? We pray in Christ's name, amen.